0: Hey, thanks for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. One of the biggest challenges in ag tech, at least as it relates to smart devices and digitization, is rural connectivity. How can we connect all these sensors and IOT devices, et cetera, when we can't even get a decent cell signal? Our guest today says that problem will be solved before most people realize, in fact, it's possible before the end of this year. We talk about that, investing in ag tech in general, indoor ag, regenerative ag, and much, much more great conversation here. We have on the show Mickey Seibel. Mickey is the operating partner of Radical Growth, which is an acceleration fund backed by leading ag tech investors such as Finistere Ventures, Bayer Crop Science, and Corteva. Mickey will share more about Radical Growth and her background during the interview, but briefly, she's a 20-year Silicon Valley company builder that is now bridging technology and transformation in the food system. She was an early product manager on the Netscape browser, first head of product at eBay, and chief product officer at four startup companies. Most recently, before joining Radical Growth, growth she led food and environmental investment at social capital mickey serves on the advisory board of several food and ag startups including swarm technologies which you're going to hear about in this episode as well as ripe.io which you can hear in episode 87 of this podcast wexus z tractor and a stealth mode water company hmm, would love to hear more about that one she starts her conversation by explaining what led her from technology and investing to food and agriculture
1: Well, I think I have always had an interest in food and the food system and where does food come from, both as, as a consumer of it and, and the health aspects of it. And about after 20 years of having a career in Silicon Valley technology, my background is in computer science, I was at that point where I wanted to do something that was more meaningful to me, not just another technology company. And I was Extremely interested in food system and food system transformation and really food as a supply chain that wasn't very digitized. But not knowing really what it looked like for somebody with 20 years of Silicon Valley technology operating experience to just jump into food and agriculture, not sure what that looked like. I went to work for an innovation center for the French telecom Orange. And there I started a program called Sustainable Food Systems. And what that program allowed me to do was to spend a year and a half doing what I call my ethnographic immersion in the food system. So having come from a product management background where my job in technology was always really study the customer, study their context, and really understand the problem and then figure out what product we're going to build and write those very detailed specifications. Doing user studies was something that was second nature to me. So I thought, well, the best way to learn about the food system is do this ethnographic immersion the way an anthropologist goes in and studies people and what they do. So I started at the beginning of the supply chain. I spent the first six months driving all over the state of California. To look at different types of farms. I wanted to see as many crops as I could, talk to as many farmers as I could, different types of farming systems, orchard crops, row crops, specialty crops, berries, wine, citrus, animals, plants. And by doing that and then following the food through the supply chain, I got to meet firsthand a bunch of corporates, farmers, entrepreneurs, universities, government agencies. And hear a wide variety of different perspectives about the food system, what works, what doesn't work, see the pain points, and there's really just something about being there firsthand where you can smell the smells and feel the the texture and and really see and immerse yourself. You you really come away with some conclusions that somebody couldn't just explain to you, and you really get in quite the same way that you internalize when you've seen it firsthand.
0: That's great. And I definitely want to get into more of the insights gleaned from from that immersion. Uh, But before we do, tell us about your tech background. You worked for some really interesting companies in a product management role. So what types of products were you kind of managing before? And just give us kind of the the high-level overview of that background.
1: Sure. All of them were digital products, some combination of hardware, a lot of them software and consumer services. So I started my career at Intel managing digital video products on the early days of the internet. Then I went to Netscape, which some of you have have heard of and even used the Netscape web browser, the first browser that really commercialized the web and made it accessible. So I got to fight the great browser war of the 90s. I was an early head of product at eBay. So I was at eBay in its very early days. And and through that transition from it being a pure online auction site into a a real e-commerce platform, I was part of a management team that helped turn around the search engine Ask Jeeves. Mm -hmm. And then I was the head of product at five different startup companies, some successful, some not so much. So that was a great learning experience in how to build companies, especially technology companies, from building something from nothing, really.
0: Coming from that and wanting to say, hey, I'd like to do something more meaningful. And I think agriculture is just more meaningful to everybody's daily life. And I love food and that sort of thing. How did your perspective on agriculture change from that point to when you finished up this immersion process?
1: I think my perspective on agriculture changed in in really understanding that deploying technology solutions in agriculture, why it takes much longer, why that process is slow. I think I I understood why it has been such a conservative industry, especially when it comes to farmers adopting technology on farm, because when you talk to the farmers about it, you really understand. You're really asking them to literally bet the farm and bear the cost of doing something that can be so risky that this year's revenue, which also feeds their family and puts food on their table, could be lost. You, you really start to to realize that in a way that in all the other industries that I had had the chance to observe through the lens of technology, whether it was logistics or different forms of e-commerce, just don't carry that same kind of risk. Hmm.
0: And your role at that time was with this Orange Group, right? Oh, it, tell us more about kind of how you took that information back and put it into practice initially.
1: Initially, it was about two things. One was, on the one hand, the the purpose of an innovation center for a global telecom is to find new assets that could be lines of business to Orange down the line. Their perspective was if you have existing assets inside the company, there's a business unit whose job is to extract value, revenue, lower costs, whatever, around those assets. So our job in the innovation center was to identify new lines of business that are new assets that would come into the company and could be new lines of business. Orange might want to start in the three to five year time frame down the, down the road. My hypothesis going in was since food was the least digitized supply chain of any industry, it's definitely in the best interest of a large global telecom to digitize global supply chains. And since there was venture capital money starting to move into this space and startups and ecosystem of startups coming into play, then it's definitely something that Orange should be looking at.
0: And I would think from that, if the, if one of the takeaways, which it sounds like it was, is that, oh, it's a lot more complicated than we thought to digitize this supply chain. And there's a reason that, you know, maybe it's not as digital as others appear. That would be enough to discourage most people. But but here you are, you know, years later, still, still working at this. So what, you know, what kind of gave you hope or where, where did that lead in that way?
1: That led to my first hypothesis about agriculture was that the first problem we really have to solve is the connectivity problem. Because I would find God, I'm in California, you would think we are in, you know, one of the most technologically advanced places on the planet. And as soon as you get off of Interstate 5 or Highway 99, which are the two freeways that run through the Central Valley, you get just a couple of miles off the freeway and suddenly your cell phone doesn't work you get out into the middle of the orchard and you're way off of these back roads in the middle of a farm field and there was no connectivity. And I was surprised, I was shocked really at how many times that happened. And so to me, that was, oh, there's a problem. It needs solving. I work for a telecom. We can make venture investments in companies that can solve this. We have lines of business that can solve this and, and really be able to study the problem from an insider's point of view.
0: Great, and, and as you've studied that problem, what solutions have come along that make you most optimistic? Because you know, I, I we're still not there yet, right? I mean, we still have a ways to go on on connectivity on the farm.
1: Yeah, I believe we're we're closer than you think. Hmm. And this, you know, after I had done the program at Orange, I left Orange and I had joined the venture firm Social Capital. And from Social Capital, now I've landed at Radical Growth, where I get to focus specifically on, on food and ag, but through that trajectory, I was always looking for the company that can solve this global connectivity problem because I really want to work with those entrepreneurs or that company because this is a, a real problem that needs solving. And it was through that trajectory that I met Sarah Spangolo at Swarm. And this is a company that is a Series A startup and they are soon to announce their commercial operation that is a, a global IoT network that will, by the end of 2020, be able to serve global connectivity to every point of the globe. So in, in studying this problem, my conclusion was that, OK, you can't solve global connectivity from the ground because we've already put cellular infrastructure into all of the places where it's practical. And where we don't, have, we don't have connectivity on the open ocean, we don't have connectivity in remote rural areas, because there just isn't the economic business model for someone to make money by doing it by stringing more towers on the ground. Because the places that lack that kind of connectivity, whether it be cellular or other network, they also often lack other infrastructure, whether it's electricity or water, other things that are needed. So you can't solve this problem from the ground. You have to solve it from space but if you're trying to solve it from outer space or low earth orbit even even ti- what people call tiny satellites are the size of a conference room table and those are millions of dollars per satellite to launch so to operate a full constellation of 100 to 150 satellites gets very expensive it's why we don't walk around with with satellite phones from Iridium We walk around with satellite phones from Iridium when we have really compelling reasons to do so from really remote areas like Antarctic stations, scientific stations. So Swarm, while I was at social capital, we found Ben and Sarah, who are the co-founders of Swarm, and they had come in having proven that they could build the world's tiniest satellite. And they built a satellite the size of a grilled cheese sandwich, and also demonstrated that they could launch them into low Earth orbit and that they can stay in orbit, they can communicate to the ground. They've gone through the regulatory process with the FCC and in the fall were granted their full commercial license. So this year they will be launching their commercial service. They already have several high profile paying customers that have been using their network. And by the end of this year, they will have their full constellation deployed. So connectivity coming for for IoT level device communications coming soon to a point near you.
0: That's incredible. A- and and so how will that work? Will, will a farmer, let's say, that wants to have a bunch of internet-connected devices in an area that's been historically not connected, buy access from Swarm?
1: No, more, more likely it will be that the products that a farmer would buy that require network to work, whatever your soil moisture sensor, whatever your your product is, those companies would work with Swarm to incorporate their tile inside the product as the communications SIM card, if you will.
0: Okay. And are currently ag tech startups that are I- IoT based, are they currently bottled bottlenecked up by this product? or by this problem, meaning, you know, if by the end of the year we have this widespread connectivity, will that open the floodgates for expansion for some of these ag tech IOT companies?
1: I believe it does. I think right now these ag tech IOT companies have, they have to design a product that works either on cellular or Wi-Fi. Sometimes they're having to integrate all of that extra hardware into the same product, which increases your bill of materials. So you end up with more expensive hardware because it's trying to solve connectivity everywhere that it could be. Or you have to create separate SKUs. That means you don't get manufacturing economies of scale that lower the cost of the hardware. And then you end up oftentimes with cellular data plans, which are really expensive. And cellular networks that, you know, to communicate over cellular actually draws on your battery. There's a reason you have to charge your iPhone or your Android phone every day because cellular communications is, is very energy intensive and if we're just looking at IoT where you're sending small data packets, you know, kilobytes of data versus megabytes or gigabytes of data, you don't really need a cellular network. You're you're trying to send a small trickle of data through a massively big tunnel. And and then you end up overpaying for the cellular service. So cellular becomes very expensive for a lot of the applications that are just doing Monitoring, or you know, a weather station that's just trying to report on ambient weather conditions. They don't need cellular data packages.
0: And to make sure that my head didn't just go to the 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 wrong place. Now, what we're talking about here is a constellation of like uh, grilled cheese sandwich size satellites that yes. are in lower orbit space that can bring internet connectivity anywhere in the world.
1: Yes. If you go to swarm.space, that's their URL, you can actually see their constellation. I think they currently have about nine satellites deployed. You can track where they are in orbit and see what points the globe they're covering. With just the satellites they have right now, they have global coverage. They do cl- cover the entire globe. But by getting the rest of their constellation deployed, they'll be bringing down that latency time from minutes or an hour to you know seconds or just a few minutes.
0: That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's one thing I've grown really fascinated by on this show, not coming from a tech background myself to you, this will be like, you know, second nature, but it's just, you know, enabling technologies. And what I mean by that is technologies that enable other technologies that we that, you know, only exist right now in the confines of the way current tech exists. And so I, I just think it's so fascinating about, you know, once you open the floodgates, what, what else can be possible? I think it's, uh, it's exciting. No, it's, that's really, really cool. As you you know you mentioned earlier that, that uh, you're not with social capital anymore uh, but now you're with radical growth. can you explain to us about radical growth? Sure sure.
1: so radical growth was founded by Kirk Haney. Kirk grew up in the Salinas Valley and spent a good portion of his professional career also in Silicon Valley Tech himself was a startup founder and CEO three times. So he knows how to raise capital, knows all the, the same problems with how do you build a company and, and do it the right way and avoid all the mistakes that, that he and I both admit you know doing startups we've made. The idea behind Radical Growth is to be more than just a venture fund that writes a check and sits on your board. We're trying to build what we call an acceleration platform. Both of us come from operating backgrounds And the idea is we want to write the check and invest in the startups that are transforming the food system, but you can help those startup founders really grow their businesses faster by bringing not just your own hands-on company building experience, and we can help you navigate or avoid the pitfalls that inevitably are going to happen in any startup, no matter how experienced the entrepreneur is, and bring with it a wide network of both strategic partners, and venture partners and universities that can help grow those companies, whether it's, you know, for example, we are in the middle of doing the radical Corteva challenge. So we partnered with Corteva and the winner of this challenge will get not just a $250,000 minimum investment from Radical Growth, they'll get access to science teams at Corteva, they'll get access to Corteva's concept farms if they need that for validating or testing their product. So you're also getting not just the capital you need, you're getting the hands-on coaching and assistance you need, and you're getting potentially your first strategic customer that can help validate your product has value in the market
0: how do you all as investors make sure that you stay in tune like you were you know you you came into this and went fully in you know entrenched into the farmer's problems and now you've got all these other responsibilities you know you have portfolio companies and you know operating the firm and all that stuff how do you make sure that you maintain that level of connected uh, connectivity with the end user customer with the farmer
1: yeah that's a great question and i think a lot of venture investors generally speaking lose lose touch with that I think in agriculture, it's a it's a little bit easier only because a I live in California and now I've got this network of farmers that I can always call up or go visit. Or, you know, I never say no when someone says, hey, come by my farm. Absolutely. I'm I'm there. So continuing to do that on a fairly regular basis to help keep in touch, especially as things are starting to change, they're starting to adopt some of these, you know, first and second and third generation of, of ag tech products and see how they're really working in the field. So I continue to do that. And I think generally it's being a good listener because over the course of a typical day or week, I'm I'm running into people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, whether they're men or women, or they come from dif- different geographies or ethnicities, or they come from government versus academia versus large corporates versus versus startups. It's recognizing that they all have a valid point of view. Whether you agree with it or not, you need to stop and listen because that's always valuable learning that helps you form and, and keep in touch with your the broader perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that broad perspective is so important. You know, one thing that I I wrestle with is is a lot of times in these podcast episodes we're having the conversation about you know quote unquote the farmer and and how broad and diverse the farmer is. You know, right. there is no the farmer. It's, it's no. just. There's, it's so fragmented and, and I, I, that's got to present a challenge, you know, for ag tech companies and for investors and in trying to figure out like, you know, which of these has legs, not just in, you know, the 550 or even 100 farmers we spoke with, but, you know, it has more broad appeal where the total adjustable market actually is, you know. More farmers.
1: Right. Well, and I think one of the hard things that we've seen with ag tech products are products that have to sell, whose, you know, go to market strategy is I have to sell to lots of farmers. That's a really, really hard go to market strategy because as you pointed out, it's a highly, highly, highly fragmented market. And selling to a corn grower in Iowa is not at all the same business model. It's not the same crop. It's not the same biology as selling to a strawberry farmer in California or in Chile. You know, a different thing yet again. So I think go to market where I have to sell to every farmer on the planet in order to get my product deployed is really, a challenge. It's It's been a challenge on the investment side and it's certainly been a challenge on the company building side. But I'm a, a really big fan of, of ag tech businesses that can find aggregation points where by selling to one point, you get access to lots of different farmers of a particular type. Like for example, financial services where you're going through an ag lender, but you're adding significant value or you're selling You know, a lot in California right now is going on in the water and water markets as the state of California has passed Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And now this year everybody has to comply with doing the accounting on how much groundwater they have, how much they're drawing, how much they're using. And it turns out the irrigation districts are a fantastic aggregation point because one irrigation district might have a hundred to a thousand farms inside of its district. And the irrigation district needs the same technologies that are often needed on the farm. And the farmers are on the board of their irrigation district. So finding those kinds of aggregation points in the market, I think, has been a very successful go-to-market strategy for a lot of the ag tech companies.
0: That's really good advice, uh, especially for those listening that uh, are either ag tech entrepreneurs or want to be, you know, what? what's that aggregation point that can serve as a good go to market strategy? You know, as you think about founders that you meet with, and I'm sure you talk to all the time, are there any things that come to mind as far as ag tech founders trying to grow a company in this space, uh, good advice for them or things that you notice that they tend to pitfalls that you see often maybe?
1: I think probably the biggest pitfall I see are the bright eyed, bushy tailed technologists who think, you know, they look from secondhand research at a problem in agriculture and say, oh, well, technology can solve that. And on paper, maybe it can. But if you don't have somebody inside of your company or on the founding team, even better, a co-founder that has either grown up in agriculture or worked in agriculture and knows it or, you know, is an agronomist who's worked in that space, you're really going to struggle because you're going to spend all of your investor money going through all of the learnings that I spent 18 months, you know, in, in the start of this career transition for myself doing the ethnographic immersion, you're going to spend all of your investor money learning those lessons. So probably the biggest piece of advice is you need to have somebody on the founding team that is experienced in agriculture. which also helps in bringing the network to bear. They know people in the industry already, and that's helpful. That will save you months of time just getting to the right person, the right decision maker.
0: What about coming from tech in general? Is there anything about ag tech that surprised you or that you thought, oh, wow, this is way different than, you know, tech investing that you you may have been involved with before?
1: It's way different than tech investing. for, For one thing, it takes longer to build companies in this space, and I think a lot of typical venture fund models don't work well in the ag tech space. Venture funds are, are set up usually as 10-year funds. So as the partners who are investing that pot of money, you're usually doing the investing in the first three or four years of the fund so that by year 10, all of those companies have either gone on to their successes, been acquired, and your your money has been earned back and then some, and maybe a few probably went out of business. But in a 10 year fund cycle, companies in the ag tech space take lo- may take longer than seven to 10 years to, to build. So you're not going to get your venture invested outcome within a 10 year fund cycle. And I think a lot of investors who are more generalist venture investors are starting to find that, oh my God, these companies take a long time to build. Hmm. And partly it's, Partly it's because agriculture, as we mentioned earlier, is a conservative industry for very good reason. They are relatively risk averse because you can't bet the farm on a new technology and that new technology doesn't work. And now the farmer has lost a year of revenue and a year of crop. But also you're still subject to biology. There are only so many growing seasons If, you know, it's generally one year, one growing season. So you can't do like you can in software. We, I, you know, we could quickly build software companies because every two weeks we can do a sprint, we can release new features, we can iterate, we can get customer feedback, make that change in the next sprint. Two weeks later, here's a new version of the product. You can't really do that in agriculture, especially when, you know, there's a lot of very promising artificial intelligence and machine learning applications in the ag space, and food more generally. But to gather enough growing seasons where you have a large enough data set to be training AI and machine learning models, that takes a while. You might need four, five, six growing seasons before you really have a viable product. And by four, five, six years, most venture investors are looking for their exit.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about uh, about indoor ag you wrote a really popular post on on Medium and it's actually response to a very popular article about you know can indoor ag feed the world. And you yeah. quickly point out in, in the article, which I would agree with that, you know, it doesn't, ha- no one production system has to feed the world. So that's kind of a mute point. And I think a lot of it stems from a trip you took to the Netherlands. Uh, you kind of alluded to the fact that it seemed like the whole country sort of got behind like, hey, we can be a leader in, in agriculture. And I was thinking about that and I've never been to the Netherlands, but it seems to me that you know, their strengths are they're an international center for things like, you know, banking and commerce. But what they're light on is land, you know, the big constraint. And so it seems like with the combination of the culture wanting a sustainable food supply, you know, them being a great place for international commerce for export into the EU, as you mentioned, but not having much land, it seems like a natural fit. And they
1: they also what had helped drive the indoor growing adoption in the Netherlands was that the the Netherlands had passed laws that prevented farmers from having runoff of chemicals into the water supply. Hmm. So the best way to contain your agricultural runoff was to grow it indoors.
0: Yeah, I, I can't. I Someday I need to go. I need to go see it. I, I've just read so much about it and, and, and wanted to for so long, but I haven't I haven't been to see it myself yet. You know, I'm thinking about this and maybe I'm, I'm stretching a, a transition here, but it seems to me in, in the U.S. at least, you know, our situation is a little bit different. What we have to offer is a whole lot more you know, open space. But if there's continuing to be this cultural interest in a more sustainable agricultural system, maybe this leads us more down a regenerative path. And I'm not saying it has to be one or the other. It definitely could be both, you know, maybe along the coast, more of, you know, you have more of the indoor uh, infrastructure built, but certainly throughout the, the middle of the country, perhaps it, it turns into more of a regenerative sentiment. Do you see things kind of unfolding similarly, whereas the logical conclusion is in the U.S. at least maybe less indoor and more regenerative?
1: I think in the US we've got the land space for multiple production systems and you know we're our geography in terms of soil types climate is so diverse that that our our agriculture sector will always look like lots of different production methods that are that exist elsewhere in the world I think in the US we're going to end up with both I think where we already have some indoor farms those are not going to go away anytime soon. I think we're going to find that there're going to be more indoor farms, but they're going to be close to the urban centers. Even if not in the city themselves is probably not so practical, but in a neighboring suburb where instead of growing strawberries in California and trucking them 3000 miles where I think at one point I looked at a statistic that was like something like 90% of or 75 or more percent of the strawberries consumed in the US are grown in California or Mexico or along the West Coast. And then they travel on average over 2,500 miles because 75% of the population live east of the Rockies. And that's even concentrated along the Eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. We can start growing these crops closer to the urban center. So where we have crops that are practical to grow indoors, we can grow them closer to the cities. And that means we can start to rethink our land use policy in the other parts of the country.
0: Yeah. And I want to get more into kind of that part of things as far as the the land use. And I I imagine regenerative is it probably has a role to play there. Can you talk about, you know, first of all, just from an investor, I one thing I wrestle with because so much so many of the regenerative stories that I've covered or heard the the common narrative is this, you know, I was leveraged to the gills. I was, you know, uh, paying big money for inputs and I found out I could be more profitable by Operating on less land, regeneratively, using less inputs. And even though I made less on, on my top line, my, my profit margin was so big that I made more money at the end of the day. I, that's the story I kind of hear most often. What get, gets me scratching my head is like, okay, well, where's the investor case for regenerative agriculture? You know, if that's what's happening here, it's, it's almost like minimalist agriculture, if you put it that way. Like, wh- what's the investment case, I guess, for regenerative ag?
1: It depends on what kind of investor you're talking about. I think if you're uh, investing in agriculture land, there's a significant case to be made for converting to regenerative practices, because you can be increasing the amount of groundwater you're storing and the health of the soil, and, and that makes a better outcome for the land in the long run. I think around regenerative practices, I would probably put regenerative agriculture where organic farming was maybe in the early 70s. It's being practiced by these really early adopters. And there are a lot of questions about, can we really do this at scale? I mean, we have proof points that individual farmers are, are doing this successfully, but when we look at it from the system of regenerative agriculture, can this really scale up? And I think nobody has really answered that question. And in you know 1970, we had those same questions about organic farming and we're finding, well, it has scaled. And in fact, we can't grow enough organic produce to meet the demand for it. So with re- regenerative agriculture, from from a venture investor standpoint, I think it's still early days. When you look at a regenerative farm and how it operates, one, one of the big opportunities I see is the future of farm machinery. Because anybody who's using or practicing regenerative practices, true regenerative practices on their farm, the existing farm machinery doesn't serve them. So until we, we start to get the tools, it's that, that a farmer can really use to do it at scale, not just do it on their 20 acres or their 70 acres, like really let's do this at scale, 10,000 acres of regenerative farming. You really need a whole different set of tools and a whole different set of processes. Hmm. So I'm, I'm a huge optimist when it comes to regenerative practices from a venture investor standpoint. I don't know that, that there is anything there yet to invest in, but it's it's certainly an area I pay a lot of attention to, and I'm I'm hopeful
0: for. And that would be more on just just a, a, you know a, a different a farming that's a farmer that's farming regeneratively has different needs, and perhaps products and services to meet those needs don't yet exist. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So there was a great documentary that I saw last year called Big Little Farm, I saw, and it yeah. profiled these this couple that had moved from L.A. into some part of California outside of L.A. And they, over seven growing seasons, how they built this regenerative farm and they were growing on their acreage some crazy number of like 75 different crops. And by watching that film, you can really get a firsthand perspective on just how manual it is and that they don't have agronomic recipes that they can just follow to say, oh, I have this pest. How do I get rid of it regeneratively? There was one where they, it took them a growing season to figure out if they ran ducks through the orchard, it would eat the worms that were eating the peaches, right? And these sorts of recipes don't exist. And the kind of machinery that they need to, to work on the farm doesn't exist. They're doing it all by hand and manual labor.
0: Yeah. I, I guess I'm just curious for your take. One thing I, I just wrestle with myself on regenerative is, so if... If the solution is to work more with nature, how do we get to this point in the first place? You know what I mean? Like if that's the solution is just to follow what works best with nature, you would think that naturally we would have gravitated that direction Or, or maybe the answer is something's changed. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, something has definitely changed. Climate change is a real reality that now we all very clearly see. I think we we got to this point because we had this amazing revolution that happened, you know, after World War II with synthetic chemistry. And suddenly, you know, the problem that we were facing in 1945 was, oh my god, how are we going to feed the world? Like how are we going to feed 7 billion people that we're going to be at the end of this century? And it was because of synthetic chemistry we can apply fertilizer, we can apply and control nature. Now we can grow the number of kilocalories that it takes to feed the 10 billion people that we're supposed to be in 2050. But I think in living with that kind of production system for 50 years, now we're starting to understand what the unintended consequences are. And they're always unintended consequences. And in the face of climate change, we have to change those production practices. And to me, food and agriculture present probably our greatest opportunity at solutions. If we can find a way to do this in a way that is regenerating landscapes, or at least being, you know, zero impact to that landscape, you get out what you put in. So now we have to solve it. We don't have a choice. And we more clearly see the unintended consequences living with the way that we've been doing it for 50 years.
0: You know, one question that that came up actually came came up recently on Twitter is it it seems like in the ag world, you're hearing more and more about venture capitalists sort of wanting to save the world. You know, you're talking a lot about climate change and sustainability and, and food waste and really, really important problems. And I know venture capital has always existed to solve problems. It seems like there's more of a altruistic angle now. Do you see that? Or could you explain to somebody maybe not from a venture capital why that's the case or seems to be the case? Sure.
1: I think climate change is probably the greatest entrepreneurial opportunity that ever faced mankind. So why wouldn't venture capital want to be involved in the greatest entrepreneurial opportunity? The The analogy that I make is that if you look at the industrial revolution and you, know, you go back to the 1800s and look at the world today since then, a lot of the institutions that we take for granted have really only existed since the Industrial Revolution. A lot of the ways that we organize government and labor, the way we organize corporations and private industry, this infrastructure we have for road, rail, transoceanic shipping, logistics and supply chains, all of this infrastructure, the way we move water, the way we produce and and manage a grid to, to send energy and electricity... All of this is a result of the Industrial Revolution. And look at the fortunes that were made during the Industrial Revolution. Now, in the face of climate change, all of that infrastructure is being rethought. It's no longer about these linear consumption models. We've got to make a transition to circular economies and regenerative practices. And that, that world 100 years from now is going to be almost unrecognizable to us today so there's an an amazing opportunity to find and build the the right companies that are going to get us there
0: great well that's a superb place to end i think if if one of those companies is listening uh, or thinks they might be one of those companies and they would love to work with radical growth uh, where do we send them and who should reach out to you and how
1: entrepreneurs if you're solving relevant problems in the food and agriculture space, please reach out, go to radical.vc and click submit a proposal. That's the best way to get on our radar.
0: And I heard you and Kirk personally review everything that comes through there. Is that true? We
1: do personally review everything that comes through there.
0: Cool. All right. Well, Mickey, thank you so much. This has been a treat. I appreciate you let me ask all of the dumb questions and you respond with very intelligent answers. It's going to make for a good episode. Thank you.
1: Great. Thanks, Tim.
0: Thank you so much to Mickey Seibel for taking the time to be on the show. Man, we covered a lot of ground there in 40 minutes. I really enjoyed that. Thanks also to my good friend Jeanette Barnard, who made that intro possible to Mickey. I really appreciate it, Jeanette. Before you jump, though, to your next podcast in your queue, a couple of announcements. I'm doing some things that you, as a listener of the show, may want to be aware of. First and foremost, I'm sending some additional insights to email subscribers. This is not just links to this show. You're already getting that, obviously. These are additional insights above and beyond what discussed here. Sign up for those at futureofag.com futureofag.com There'll be an email icon front and center once you get to that website. Just click on that and give us your email address and you'll be signed up. Along with that, I'm going to be hosting some occasional virtual video meetups to discuss these topics with you. Ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, sustainability, food security. I call this table for 10 because it will be you and 9 other people. We're going to just open the floor for discussion get to meet each other i think you'll meet some really interesting people that are part of this future of agriculture community including you know business owners leaders in agribusiness creators investors all sorts of interesting people but make sure you're signed up for the email updates and you'll get all the details on that as well thanks for your time and your attention i really don't take it lightly we're sharing some really cool examples of farmers becoming food companies in next week's episode i hope you'll join us we'll be back with more ag innovators